Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to change it up and give you a stock idea. I'm going to be your investment analyst. I'm going to pitch you a stock for the next, say, half an hour. But before I do that, I'm going to also provide some context on why I invest this way in, in companies just like this and how you can find them too. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll be back in the next week with hopefully a co-host that can bring me through or talk me through their own stock idea. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. My name is Owen Raskovich. In this episode, it's just going to be a little old me again, and I'm going to deliver on my promise to bring you a stock idea. A few weeks ago, you might remember that I said I would be back with a share idea that maybe you can take away and research for yourself. And although it's taken me a few weeks to get to this, uh, I'm pleased to bring it to you and hopefully it can be something that you will uh, use as a launching pad for your own research, perhaps this weekend or over the coming weeks. I also wanted to make mention of a tweet and a LinkedIn, I guess, post that I made the other day asking for fund managers and analysts in my Twitter and LinkedIn communities if they would like to co-host one of these podcast episodes with me and talk stocks or pitch their favorite idea, you can do that. You just need to reach out to me and I'll fill you in on all of the details because our audience loves stock talk and it's something that I do want to bring more to the table in 2020. For this short episode, I'm going to talk to you about my favorite ASX listed small cap. I'm going to take you through my investment process and the one that I use and the philosophy that guides, I guess, that process for our Rask Invest investment research service. So this is a, a, an investment research service that anyone can subscribe to and get my share research and all of our research on ETFs and funds and the like. Uh, I'm going to tell you how I found this small company and some of the tricks perhaps that you can use to find your own. And finally, I'm going to take you through the full investment pitch process. So I'm going to tell you exactly why I bought it, what the risks are, what I perceive the risks to be, what I perceive to be the potential of this business, and kind of just bring it all together for you, just like you would if you were standing in an investment committee and someone came in with an idea and they wanted to prove to you why it should get into a stock portfolio. So think of me like your investment research analyst, and I'm going to pitch you a stock idea, but I'm also going to do a little bit of a preamble just in terms of you know how I think about things, so it provides some context for the for the stock. Okay, at the end of this, if you decide that it's worth further investigation, or if you like what you hear, you can do a few things. Firstly, of course, I would love it if you joined our investment research service, Rask Invest. I'll provide a link in the show notes so you can find out more about that and uh, some of the benefits, not just in terms of share research, but all the other things that come with that. Um, another thing you can do is you can just go away and try and find fund managers who already own this stock. There have been a few on this podcast who own this company. So if you follow them, 
you might find that this is held in their portfolio or has been a recent addition. Of course, I don't know what they're buying or selling at any one time. I have no knowledge of that whatsoever. This is an investment idea that I've come up with myself, but I know that there are some investors in my community who do like it as well. And the other thing you can do, I guess, is just research it yourself. Have a look, um, maybe read the annual report, read the chairman's address, the CEO's address. What you'll find with this company that I'm going to pitch to you, it's very uh, candid and very straightforward. It's very transparent in the way they speak. So it's very understandable, even though the actual underlying technology that this company is developing is quite complex. The actual message and the thesis that you can build around that is actually pr pretty, uh, pretty easy to grasp. Okay, so before I get into it, I just want to say, obviously, this is general advice only. So I do not, even though I'm giving you an investment idea today, it's not personal financial advice. There is a lot of risk to investing. As you know, the past performance is not a guarantee of future performance. All that said, um, there's another thing that I want to say with regards to this company. The company that I'm going to pitch to you is actually quite small. So as I record this, it has a market capitalization as in the total worth of the company around about $170, $180 million. That's in Australian dollars. So by almost everyone's definition, this is a small cap company. It's also, I believe, very poorly understood by the average investor, which I'll get to in just a minute. Um, another thing is I am not a trader. I do not trade stocks as I'll get to in just a minute again, but this is not an idea I believe for traders because it is quite a liquid and it is the type of business that is pretty closely held by the investors that do own it because I guess most of them can see the potential too. So all that considered, I guess, if I had to label this as something, I would say it's high risk. So uh, please keep that in the back of your mind as we talk about this or as I talk about this. So I guess the best way to start now is just for me to jump into my investment process. I talk a lot about the investment processes of other investors and when I interview them, but um, I thought it maybe just provide some context on the way I think about investing, having spoken to fund managers for well, the better part of a decade now, I guess, and uh, interviewed them and then developed my own um, way of thinking about things. And this is all what's encapsulated in our, our members-only service, Rask Invest. But um, this will also, I guess, be pretty familiar to you if you have taken the Value Investor Program, so the program that we run for people to learn about investing and how to do valuations and, and really build a thesis from the ground up. So again, you'll find links in the show notes to that. But none of this will be new. But I'm just going to take you through quickly the high-level stuff of our investment philosophy, how that informs our process. So the first thing we look for is obviously companies that are within our circle of competence. So when I think about this, I think about the experience that I have. And for me, being a finance person, obviously anything that's in the finance industry, any company that's in the finance industry, having a technology background myself, having um, been, I would say, at an intermediate or junior level, being able to program for quite a number of years, uh, being able to build online businesses, I would say the kind of intersection of my knowledge is around software, technology, finance, um, and maybe more broadly into more banking. But those are probably my core competencies. In those areas, I tend to find my best ideas. Outside of that would be outside of my circle of competence. And um, I'm very quick to discard any business that is effectively outside of those areas. Fortunately for me, those the businesses in these industries also tend to be the best businesses when it comes to return on invested capital, when it comes to sustainability of margins and the like. The second thing I look for is a management team with lots of integrity, energy and talent. So this is not new. Um, Warren Buffett come up with this kind of, I guess, Venn diagram from three perspectives many years ago. And you want the intersection of those three things. So integrity, energy and talent. But you do not want one or two without the third one. Because, for example, if you have a, a CEO with 
lots of energy and lots of talent, but no integrity, you can quickly find yourself on the short end of something that you don't want to be. And so what I'm looking for when I read through analyst report, or annual reports rather, or speak with management or listen to their calls or ask questions, I'm looking for candor and I'm looking for uh, obviously deep domain knowledge. You can do that yourself um, any way you like. You can listen to any call you want. But the other thing is, you know, obviously we talk a lot about skin in the game. So I'm just looking for a skew to long-term incentives that benefit me as an investor. The third thing is a competitive advantage or moat. We talk a lot about uh, moats on this program, but I guess there are a few different types of moats, which you should probably understand if you're going to be directly investing, but those are network effects um, with the quintessential, quintessential example rather being Facebook. That is the more people who use a product or service, the more valuable that product or service becomes and the incremental cost of acquisition. So the customer acquisition cost falls dramatically. Um, another one, another area where you can find, I guess, some wide moat businesses is in uh, when they have regulatory or licensing um, benefits. So, so we would have, I guess, in a, you know, pharm pharmaceuticals where uh, a company develops a, a novel uh, vaccine, for example, which is, I guess, the talk of the town at the moment, you could have um, a business get granted some IP or some um, protection around that so it can charge a uh, sometimes exorbitant price for a product that doesn't cost a lot to make. But the next ones uh, that you might consider, you might come across uh, location and efficient scale. So we find like toll road operators, obviously there's only typically one major toll road in one major location uh, or one significant location. So that is an, a competitive advantage. The next one is scalability and stickiness. So how sticky is the customer base? I've talked on this program before with a few fund managers who talk about uh, having very high amounts of recurring revenue and the ways that you can look for that, whether it's a technology business or whether it's an industrials business. Um, we're, looking for, we're looking for products that are high value but low cost. So um, we're looking for a business that supplies something which doesn't cost a lot to make, but they can charge a lot for. And there are many instances on this program where, we, where we've talked about the different industries where these appear, but that's kind of a, a different way to think about the moat and competitive advantage. One final thing is people tend to jump towards a brand as kind of like a, uh, I guess, a, a competitive advantage, but brands in themselves are actually very weak competitive advantages. So gone are the days when you would go to a supermarket shelf and you would specifically target a product simply because it is the branded product. Nowadays, we have it, the, the information discovery process. So the search cost that's associated with finding a brand that is respectable, is it's a lot easier to find a brand. Like for example, you can go online, you can go online to Amazon and, and read the reviews of a product before you buy it. And you're probably more likely to trust that than say you were 10 or 20 years ago when the reviews were pretty limited or you didn't really trust technology itself. And of course, then we have more consumer protections in place nowadays. So I, I just I just make that point because a lot of people go, oh, competitive advantage, a brand. Yeah, but brands, if you look at like um, Heinz or SPC or any of those things, you, you'll begin to notice pretty quickly that brands probably aren't what they used to be, especially for consumer products. So the fourth thing is that I look for is a, is a, a large addressable market. So we're looking for as investors who are, I guess, hunting for businesses that uh, can go on to return 10, 20 or even 50 times the amount of money that you invest over a very long period of time, what we're looking for are these quote-unquote multi-baggers um, in industries that give them a leg up. So a rising tide doesn't necessarily lift all boats in an industry, but a rising tide can lift many of the boats in an industry. So what I mean by that is if you've got an industry growing at 10% and the company is just holding its share of the industry, well, you can expect that that company is going to grow its top line. But if you're in an industry that's declining, and you're still holding your own, then the business is not going to grow. So, you know, 
why would we put ourselves in the situation where we're trying to, I guess, catch a falling knife? Or if this industry is in structural decline, why would we put our money there? That's the basic logic. And so we're looking for rapidly growing markets. And there are quite a few examples that we've brought up on this program in the past. Finally, shares must be reasonably valued. Now, this is going to, I guess, fly in the face of some value investors who listen to this program. But I believe there's no such thing as a value investor because there are so many people in the market who know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. And all we are trying to do as any type of investor is try to find an asset which we believe will be worth more in the future. That's as simple as it is. You don't need to apply a label like growth, momentum, uh, value. These are all the same thing. We're all here to make money. And the only way you make money is by finding a business which is undervalued or an asset which is undervalued. So for me, I spend 95% of my time reading, thinking, and learning about a business, and probably just 5% goes into the modeling. If I'm trying to find these rapid growth businesses, if anyone who's ever done a discounted cash flow analysis will know how difficult it is to put a specific value on a company. There are so many different variables that go in that uh, I think it was Stephen, uh, Stephen Arnold said on the program, it's like the, the Hubble telescope. You get one variable wrong, you know, one second you're looking at a different planet altogether than what you thought you were uh, looking at if you put, say, a 5% discount rate or a 10% discount rate or who knows what. So, you know, I think spending any more than a day modeling the types of companies that I look for is a massive misallocation of my research time, especially if it's for my initial investment decision. I'll oftentimes just buy a small par parcel of shares, 1%, 2% of my portfolio if it meets all the qualitative factors, and then I can always um, average up or average down. So that's kind of like the five steps that I, that I follow and you'll find more links in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. But it gives you, I guess, context for the investment process, which is the next step. So how do we go about doing all of this? Um, our investment process for the Rask Invest Service is actually very simple. So uh, the vast, and I think it should be for the vast majority of Australian investors because um, it's really not that difficult to invest well for a long period of time if you have a couple of very simple frame, frameworks in place. And I think the best way for any Australian or most Australian investors, not any, but most Australian investors is to think about how you can minimize your downside and maximize your upside with some very simple steps. And so the first one is we encourage all of our members to adopt a core and satellite approach to investing. So we have lots of research on ETFs, index funds, and we're slowly introducing research on managed funds. But what we're trying to do is have a core portfolio of really diverse, solid investments that are... I guess those bottom draw style investments. And as, if you're a new investor, particularly listening to this, I understand this is more sophisticated investors podcast, but if you're a new investor listening to this, you should be aiming to really build that core portfolio exposure out first before you consider some of these satellite approaches or these tactical approaches that I'm about to introduce you to. So what we tend to advise is build this core portfolio. Maybe you start with 90% of your money allocated to this core portfolio, and then you add these satellites, which are kind of like the little moons that go around the planet. And then you can, over time, as your conviction builds and your understanding of investing builds, you can really emphasize uh, those smaller positions. So with the satellite exposures, which is what we're talking about today, with the company I'm about to tell you about, it's kind of the opposite of a core holding because it is very small by most people's standards. It is often a liquid because no one wants to sell it. And it's kind of going through this transition where it's got huge upside potential, but it's also got considerable downside. I wouldn't say it's you know, one-to-one, -one, I wouldn't say that the upside is 100% and the downside is 100%. I'd in fact probably tilt the odds um, at the upside possibility considerably in our favor, but also the probability that it achieves um, some of that upside 
um, also in our favor. So we adopt a core and satellite approach and then we never, ever, ever try and time our way in and out of positions. So this idea that people can buy low and sell high kind of, it re requires our mind to get drawn into this false truth that we can buy quote unquote good and cheap stocks by just looking at the 52 week low section of the paper. I think that's completely wrong. And I think investors are misguided by that belief. Studies show that just 4% of the stock market, 4% um, of the stocks on the stock market account for all of the outperformance. So 4% of stocks account for all of the outperformance. And the basic idea is that if you're trying to find a needle in a haystack, when you find one, you don't then go and put it back into the haystack just to find it again. You buy it, you hold it, and you keep it. And that's kind of the approach we take is you just accumulate these positions. So we never ever buy or sell a company in our portfolio for a non-investment related decision, a non-investment related reason. So for example, we would never sell a position or a stock just because the share price has risen fast or it's fallen quickly. Now that's going to probably ruffle a few a few feathers, and I get that. But of course, we consider you know the opportunity cost against our expected or intrinsic valuation of a company. But because we emphasize dollar cost averaging and investing, we're not, we're not fund managers. We don't have a limited pool of resources. We are constantly adding to our portfolios or that's what we uh, hope our, our members are doing. What we're trying to do is we're trying to encourage people to think not as buy low, sell high kind of thing. It's more to think just in terms of accumulation because there is some really important, I guess, mathematics behind uh, principles behind this that you need to understand. We only sell when a thesis breaks is the basic um, analogy here and then the dollar cost averaging approach just kind of just forces us to accumulate over time we've got a few more things before i get stuck into the stock idea the next one is in a bear market like we're potentially facing now i really have no insight into where we go from here but other than to say that we could be facing a bear market and if we are we don't let the smoke cloud our vision of the long-term potential of the companies that are in our portfolio so Thomas Phelps wrote decades ago, and I quote, when experienced investors frown on gambling with price fluctuations in the stock market, it is not because they don't like money, but because both experience and history have convinced them that enduring fortunes are not built that way, end quote. What he's saying is the best and the biggest fortunes are built in the share market by holding companies, not by timing your way in and out. Now, there are Plenty of people who would disagree and plenty, plenty of people who would come on the show that are very sophisticated who maybe disagree with that uh, notion from Thomas Phelps, but it is one that I subscribe to and I believe that if you find a great asset, hold on to it. Um, I think David Gardner from the US says that if you have three cafes on a street, uh, you don't necessarily have to try and pick which one's going to be the best from each day or each month or each week to the next. Just find the best cafe and own that one. And that's a very simple philosophy and it's the way I approach my investing too. And so the final point I have here is just on mathematics. And it's very simple maths, but if it wasn't already hard enough to find the needle in a haystack, the one or the 4% of stocks that do perform really well and are capable of returning 10, 20 or 100x of your money, uh, it does take a long time for this to happen and you need a thick skin. So if you're, if you're about to get this share idea that I have, I'm not saying it's got that type of upside potential, but if you're, if you're thinking, oh, maybe I can time my way in and out of this, that's not how this works, at least not in my experience. So the simple maths is that a company capable of growing at 20% per annum, so you know it's, it's compounding at 20% per annum, still takes 13 years to become a 10-bagger. And a company that grows at 15% per annum can take 17 years. And I'm talking about total shareholder returns here. So some pretty simple maths. But I mean, there are other companies that have kind of, 
I guess, thrown back at that, some um, examples of how they can grow and achieve rates even in excess of that. Okay, so I've got through all that. Thank you for listening. Now the stock idea. What's the company? This company is a company called RPM Global. And it goes by the ticker symbol on the ASX is R-U-L. We first recommended for Rask Invest, we first recommended RPM Global back in March 2019. At the time, its share price was around about 57 cents and it had a market capitalization of 137 million. I think at the time it had about $20 million of cash as well. Our conviction in the prospects of this business grew and then we released another buy idea again at 68 cents in August 2019. So not, not more than a year ago. Again, the ticker symbol is RUL. And as I said in at the top of this show, sorry, this is a company I own. It's a company I've recommended. I am talking my own book big time. That is the purpose of this podcast. So keep that in mind. I am probably a little bit biased. I maybe have some endowment bias for holding this company, but this is this company is also a small cap um, and it can be volatile. So all of those disclaimers apply. So the company we recommended at around about 57 cents, it rallied to around about a dollar 20 early in 2020, but has since fallen back. And I, th- I now think it's a pretty good value. Although obviously with COVID-19 and coronavirus, there are some potential demand side impacts, which I'll get to in just a moment. But I'm effectively now going to tell you everything you need to know about this company so you can go away and do your research and maybe even, I guess, consider owning it. So during the gold rush, most would-be miners lost money, but people who sold them picks, shovels, tents, and blue jeans, like Levi Strauss, made a nice profit. That's a quote from Peter Lynch, who was the famed Magellan fund manager. As you no doubt know, I am a I'm not the biggest fan of resource businesses and I kind of focus my attention on the industries that I know pretty well and that those are technology, software, uh, financials, those types of businesses. Um, In the resources sector, what we tend to have, and this is me, an Australian who knows that this resources sector provides for our country in many ways, most of the companies in the resources sector, at least those that we tend to invest in, are price takers. So, you know, that means that they don't necessarily have complete control over the the sales pipeline. Um, And most early stage resources businesses, so companies that would be around the equivalent market cap of the one I'm talking about now, also have pretty terrible economics. So just like you can imagine the cost and the risks involved in exploration, planning, financing, designing a mine, all of these things take time and, and capital. Then it often takes years before the mine is in the ground and it's making money. But then the risks don't even stop there. After that, you have commodity prices, which can swiftly drop below the cost that it, uh, that you incur to produce the one ton of iron ore or the ounce of gold or whatever it might be. While this process of entrepreneurship and I guess Twiggy Forrest from Fortescue can testify to this, it's essential for society. It can be, and it can be extremely profitable. Mining is a very tough business. So I don't tend to invest there. Fortunately, and I'll go back to the quote from Peter Lynch, there are some fantastic businesses operating in adjunct industries to the mining, uh, to the miners themselves that can meet all of the requirements that I set out kind of in my investment process and philosophy. And those are, you know, like pretty much making a company a high quality and consistent investment. So RPM Global is the name of the company that I believe fits that bill. It's probably the closest I'd go to directly owning a mining share. And so 
let's just go back and, and learn a bit more about RPM Global. So the business, if you go back uh, more than 40 years ago, and I think it was the late 1970s, Dr. Ian Runge started a company called Runge Associates as an advisor slash consultant to mining companies. But it didn't take too long for the company and, and for Runge to recognize that the future of mining and consulting was not in necessarily the digging and the drilling, but in mine, modern mining software and technology that would ultimately be used by all of the companies that um, he was consulting to. So a change promptly or soon thereafter was underway and Dr. Runge didn't want to get left behind. As the world started adopting technologies and communications platforms, he thought, well, maybe we can offer something in that space. So if we fast forward to the 2000s, as a consumer technology, you know, as our consumer technology, sorry, was taking off, Runge knew that he needed more capital in the business to make his dream a reality, to invest in technology and to deliver for clients. So the company listed on the ASX. And I'll quote him here where he says, unfortunately, the global financial crisis hit less than six months after the IPO, followed just a few years later by a collapse in commodity prices. The timing wasn't ideal. And that's what he said when he announced his retirement in 2018. That between 2007, which is the peak of the, I guess, pre-GFC, till around about 2012, you will remember that Australia had a very good time as an, uh, as an economy because we were buoyed by commodity prices. So although the rest of the world was being dealt these massive financial headaches, the exception was the Australian resources sector because we had BHP, Rio, Fortescue, Shell, BP, Glencore, all of these multinational mining companies investing heavily as they rode the tailwind of, of China's infrastructure boom. But the tide turned on commodity prices in around about 2012. Um, commodity prices started to hit the skids and, and miners were kind of in damage control. But fortuitously, an innovative and enterprising technology executive named Richard Matthews was on the lookout for a new company to call his own. His bread and butter, Richard uh, Matthews, bread and butter was enterprise software. So software designed for, I guess, the entire corporate office. He could see how lucrative, but how far behind mining software was from the other sectors and the opportunity that was already right in front of the company being Runge Associates. As a consultant to the mining industry, Runge had already put it or got its foot in the door with many mining companies. But the problem was that Runge's consulting and advisory business was so profitable and they were very good at what they did. So there wasn't much of an impetus to then go and expand the technology side of the business. The massive catalyst came when commodity prices fell and the company saw a massive reduction in its employee headcount. And then for an executive like Matthews, this was kind of an opportunity he had been waiting for. He had been successful um, at a company called JD Edwards, which was sold to Oracle. And then as CEO of Mincom, which was sold to uh, the Swiss company ABB. But Matthews brought a wealth of managerial and tech technology experience and he not only did he take the job at, at Runge, he also took a big stake in the shares and became the CEO and it was the firm's marketing technology efforts that became his focus from around about 2012, 2013 and you can see that if you go back into the annual reports. Matthew set in motion a mission to deliver an off-the-shelf ERP system otherwise known as an enterprise resource planning system for mining companies. Right. His mission was to create an open architecture where other uh, pieces of software could talk to his software and effectively allowed um, you know, 
the miners to talk to the, to the geologist, to talk to the accounting department and all those types of things. Um, and then over time, they would build up their suite of software. And lots of companies talk a big game. And if you've been around technology long enough, you know this. Lots of tech companies talk a big game about quote unquote managing complexity. It's almost like it's written on every technology company's website. But a few, but few of them actually go ahead and do this at scale. The problem with mining is that it can be extremely complex from a software point of view. So you have geologists, as I said, talking to chemical engineers, talking to structural engineers, talking to truck drivers, mechanics, accountants, the, you know, it goes on. And then you can have an issue where you're working across languages and time zones and all those different types of things and in remote, remote locations where internet connections aren't necessarily readily available. So RPM in the early days knew it needed to partner with a big software company that was already kind of embedded in these miners. So a company like SAP. Um, it also needed to embed its software with equipment manufacturers, so those that create the big trucks, for example. And that would allow them to bring the miners' systems to life by effectively creating endpoints between all these different types of software so the miners could talk to all parts of the business relatively easily. So the way Matthews describes it, and this is going back to a video I did quite a few years ago, is enabling data to flow both ways, both ways throughout a mining project or company. So imagine you have automated trucks talking to financial planning software that tells them don't take that route because if you take that route, you're going to wear the tires down quicker and ultimately that this will cost us that much. And so you can make your mind dramatically more efficient by just having software that automates all of these complex decisions. Uh, it's almost, and because I, I talk about this, it's almost impossible to estimate just how large the market opportunity is for RPM because after six years or seven years, of kind of this massive research and development spend, RPM offers software across 10 commodity groups or more than 10 commodity groups. So think coal, iron ore, et cetera, with different mining methods. So above ground, below ground, you know, all these different types, it's kind of expanded the suite out. There's another company on the ASX, which is called Imdex, and it goes by the ASX ticker code, I believe, IMD. Uh, Imdex is another mining technology company and it estimated a few years ago when I first did this research that the just the exploration and the development software could be worth as much as 700 US million dollars a year. Now, when I went to a mining conference in Melbourne not too long ago, there were there was no shortage of mining companies around and the the stage when Rio Tinto was presenting was just packed because everyone wanted to know where, is the, where are the blue chip companies looking to add value? And if I go back uh, quite a few years, Rio Tinto announced, uh, I'm going to say it was in 2017, that uh, it, was five, it would spend $5 billion on productivity improvements, improvements by increasing the use of technology and analytics. So $5 billion. And so you get a lot of these new age technology companies that are kind of trying to fall into the slipstream behind these massive blue, chip, blue chips and, and deliver that software for them. In 2017, Rio said, and I quote, a total of 29 Komatsu haul trucks will be retrofitted with Autonomous Haulage System, or AHS, technology starting next year, end quote. The AHS system was designed by Komatsu and Modular, which is um, a technology partner of RPM. Uh, so imagine, you know, trucks that drive themselves. You've probably seen it, you know, in news updates or, or, or what have you, but they are around and it's, it's happening more frequently we see mines becoming more, I guess, technology literate and focused on really driving efficiencies through the use of autonomous vehicles and technologies. And RPM Global is kind of prime, 
placed in terms of its ability to service these end markets. So you're probably already starting to see the potential for a company like RPM. At first, it is an open architecture. It says, yes, we welcome all these other different types of software. Please, we will, uh, please use us because we will work with your existing vendors. And then we will build out our suite in the background and then offer more products back into the market. So I know I'm waffling a bit here, but I just want you to imagine where a, a truck that drives itself and gets smarter as it drives around, thanks to machine learning, it, it talks to the crushing uh, machine, which then loads it on, loads, um, you know, mill or anything onto the truck, which then drives itself over somewhere. Maybe it loads it onto a train, which then that drives itself somewhere, which we've seen these, <laughs> these things can actually happen. Uh, the train drives itself down to the port and the port um, is aut automated as well and it delivers it onto a, onto a ship and then it's taken off to the end clients. But this, imagine this type of environment. Well, this actual, this is actually happening. So, you know, parts of this uh, ecosystem are actually already operating autonomously. So you have this massive movement underway and it's been going now for quite a few years and RPM is now starting to see the benefit of that. So now if I switch gears away from, the, I guess, the narrative and I talk to the financials. So RPM Global is based on the last accounts that we have around about break even from, you know, from the income statement perspective or even slightly unprofitable kind of jumps in and out. But this is the reason I think that so many investors miss RPM Global. It's because they, they you know, they're scanning for price earnings ratios or all of that type of just first level thinking style valuation methodology. They're looking at their brokerage accounts, they've scanned for a PE ratio, RPM Global won't even show up. But if we look you know, beneath the surface of RPM Global, you can actually see that its software division, which is broken out separately in the reports, is actually very profitable at the operating level. And it has grown very quickly over the recent few years. And that's despite it recently transitioning to a software subscription model and heavily investing back into the business in terms of R&D or research and development. So I think the next couple of years for RPM Global uh, from a financial point of view are a little bit uncertain because we've got this transitioning go, uh, transition underway from uh, perpetual or once-off licensing, which you get a big upfront payment for, to then going to a subscription model, which might last, say, three or five years for a license for a mine. You don't incur that money straight away, so that cash flow doesn't become immediately available to you. But over time, it creates a more predictable revenue stream and it can be very wide margin. So just turning to the cash flow statement, by my calculations, RPM Global is in fact free cash flow positive. So it makes cash, the business, the core business is actually making money despite growing quickly and despite rolling out new products. And it's this, I guess, dichotomy between the, the lack of profits and the positive free cash flow, which means that anyone who does look at it has an advantage of the people who just screen it out based on profitability or some such. So the problem that you have with that is if you are one of these people that look for profitability on the income statement and you don't look deeper, you might not see this opportunity until it's well and truly, not well and truly too late, but you might not see it for a few years until it really shows through on the income statement. But if you understand how to value tech businesses from a free cash flow point of view, it's actually quite simple to get your head around the financials that RPM Global has. Um, and speaking of valuing companies based on cash, RPM has enough of it. So at 31 December 2019, it had around $24.5 million of cash and no debt. So it's in a net cash position of around about $24 million, which is pretty impressive for a company 
that's, I guess, only valued by the market around about 170 million. Um, and so it's also investing this 10% back into R&D. And that's important because I'll come back to that. But in the next one to two years, I expect RPM's financials to be quite volatile. I expect the shares to be volatile. I expect the results to be patchy. But I think we're coming to the back end of where it needs to be in terms of a software business. So su supplying these subscriptions to the market. And I'll explain why that kind of gives it upside in, the, in a moment. But we, we probably will see an impact from while I'm on it, um, COVID-19 and the impacts of you know, shutdowns and, and various parts of the ecosystem in the mining uh, industry shutting down um, to an extent. Like for example, projects might be curtailed, which then impacts how much software people need for design and, and modeling and that type of thing. But again, I just want to say, I think RPM has come to the final stages of its tech development pipeline. Management have said that relative to uh, revenue that they will fall back to a, a more industry standard level of uh, reinvestment back into R&D. So that will widen margins, I suspect, over time. And the distribution team of RPM Global and the advisory teams in that uh, aspect of the business, they've already been trained in how to sell subscription models to these miners. So it's not like it's a completely new thing to them anymore. So they're kind of hitting their stride, I would say now. Um, I do want to emphasize, though, that the subscription sales that RPM Global makes are actually quite small relative to total sales. So we're not yet seeing it, you know, dominating the financial statements, which is, again, probably why the business has remained subdued in terms of its share price performance for quite a few years. But subscriptions will make the business more predictable. And so in just uh, a month ago, since recording this this podcast, um, RPM came to the market and it said in March 2020 that its software subscriptions are now running at $11.4 million per year. This is up from zero just a couple of years ago. And it has a total contracted value of $25.4 million from its subscriptions. So, you know, again, this is not bad for a company that has an enterprise value, which is market capitalization minus cash or net cash of around about $150 million. So I guess as we come through to the back end of this podcast, how much do I think it's worth? Um, well, I find RPM Global is still a, quite a tough company to value because it is kind of in this um, transition. So you know, modeling is actually, it makes it quite sensitive to di different inputs. But um, I guess if I kind of set, the, set aside the coronavirus impacts and, and any potential demand side effects that could bring for the business. And if I just think about kind of bigger picture stuff going forward with an enterprise value of around about $150 million right now, and a growing market and potentially wider margins in time with these customers that have very deep pockets and are now catching up with other industries in terms of um, the sophistication from a technology point of view, I can see RPM Global potentially being a two or $300 million company in, in five years from today. So that's, you know, it's $150 million now on a, a net cash basis. So, you know, in, in maybe three, maybe five years, probably towards the back end of that, it's possible that that's where it could be. It could be higher, it could be lower, but I would say that's a fair, kind of like a fair expectation of mine for it to be up there. So I just want to touch on a few more things. Obviously, I said that management is a key part of this. Well, management um, are pretty well aligned here in my view. So um, if you watch some of the RPM Global videos on YouTube, and there are plenty of them, which, which, which are great because they provide insight into the actual products if you're not a miner or a developer or a software engineer. But um, it doesn't take long to realize that the CEO, Richard Matthews, He's kind of got this infectious personality when it comes to technology and innovation. Remember, this is a guy that comes from a technology background and has just applied his ways to being in mining. 
But when you're out there trying to hire the best software engineers or you're, de you know, you're trying to find great developers to come and develop new, probably boring projects for mining companies, it's actually vital that the person who these, um, I guess, engineers look up to, uh, you know, is also excited about the projects that they've got underway. So when I think about the business, I think um, it's probably uh, a great thing. It is a great thing that there is significant alignment with in, in terms of um, culture and in terms of, I guess, innovation, but, um, and also skin in the game. Matthews, by my calculations, owned about 8 million shares according to the annual or the half year report for 31 December 2019, which is around about $6.5 million, I believe. So um, if he left, I would probably get a bit spooked because I'd be like, well, why is this guy leaving? But his alignment for now seems actually quite good. Um, there are a few other executives that also own a chunk of shares in the business and those kind of provide me confidence. The Probably the one blemish on the incentive side of things is I would like to see more long-term incentives rather than short-term incentives because you'd want to see that skew as a long-term investor. But again, the shares kind of, kind of mitigate that risk. Speaking of risks, um, there are a few risks. We've got competition. So um, there are you know, many other miners and tech companies out there trying to, um, I guess, encroach on this, this software space. Um, there are a couple of massive um, software companies overseas. You know, we have the likes of SAP, Oracle, all these types of businesses that kind of roll out these massive um, software suites for their clients, whether they be in energy or mining or what have you. Uh, then we have, I guess, volatility. I've said that this is a small business, can be illiquid to buy shares, you know, these types of, types of things. It's a high risk business from that perspective, absolutely. Commodity prices, commodity prices, if they fall, could hurt the business because it kind of curtails new pro, uh, projects. You could have a rise in, not that this is likely, I guess, but you could have a rise in, um, you know, uh, accounts uh, receivable. So bad debts and those types of things for the company not being able to uh, get the money on time to to roll it and when it rolls out projects or rolls out to technology for the, its clients. Uh, culture. So one thing I like to do, and this is an inside tip for anyone, is just to go and, and look at the Glassdoor reviews for any US company. So glassdoor.com, we could use Seek or Indeed here in Australia or the UK. And they will tell you, uh, they give you reviews of company culture and approval ratings of the CEO and those types of things. So remember, you know, culture is a very important thing in a technology company. So that's something I watch. Uh, and finally, uh, this is something that is obvious, but I'm quite excited about this business and I own it. So there's kind of this expectations versus reality. I expect a considerable amount from RPM in terms of its subscriptions and being able to onboard new clients and really get through uh, coronavirus and COVID-19 without its advisory business being severely impacted. Um, you know, uh, that is a risk. And in the next two to three years, we'll probably see some of those risks play out. Uh, and so my expectations versus what the, the actually happens, I could be way off. And that's just me as an investor. I could be wrong. And we try and, we, we, we try and think probabilistically, but we do often get things wrong. So this is a high-risk investment. may not come true necessarily. So I just want to air that out too. So the bottom line, what's the bottom line with RPM Global? RPM, in my opinion, has all the hallmarks of what could be an innovative and profitable small Australian SaaS business or software as a service business it's uniquely placed to capitalize on what is arguably the most important industry in the Australian economy. It's also well-managed, I believe, cashed up. It's well-resourced with tech talent and it has handy overseas exposure for local investors like me. So that is why I bought RPM Global Shares twice and why I continue to hold them as of the date of this recording, which is the 3rd of April, 2020. So 
that's my pitch. It did take longer than I expected. 40 minutes is quite a long time to do a pitch. Normally, I'd have a one-pager or something like that in front of me, but that is RPM Global, uh, and you can find out more about it wherever you get your research and your information. Um, so what do you do now? Like I said, uh, go ahead, f find me on Twitter, find me on LinkedIn if you want to ask any questions, or I encourage you to join our investment service, of course, or reach out to one of the fund managers that you know that owns this business and, and see if they like it or see if they, well, of course they do if they own it, but maybe ask them questions, see if they respond to you, those types of things. In the next few weeks, I'll be back and it won't be me pitching a stock and I won't be by myself, which is great. Um, even though we're in isolation, it would be good to get a fund manager dial in and pitch their own company and talk their own book, which I am doing and I have a few fund managers lined up. If you know a fund manager that you think would be great for the program, please let them know to get in contact with me and we can arrange that. Uh, of course, thank you for listening uh, and I hope that even through all of this, you stay safe. Through all of the isolation, you manage to find time to do your research and to listen to podcasts like this. If you want to hear more from me or find any of the links to our other material, you can find it in your podcast player. I've provided some links there. And all in all, just stay safe and happy investing. Bye.